Welcome to the Our Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Eero, and I am your host for episode 11 on March 12, 2010. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is indexed on iTunes under Air Medical Today. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on my blog at blog.ero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guests are Denise Landis, chairperson, and Chris Nelson, co-director of the Graduate School with the Medical Transport Leadership Institute in Wheeling, West Virginia. I also check in with Kathy Nichols, former flight nurse with West Michigan Air Care, who recently returned from a medical mission to Haiti in the first response section. Before I introduce my guests, I want to go over some feedback from Episode 10 and cover some recent air medical transport news. I received feedback this past week from Robert Fabich, who is a first lieutenant with the United States Army Nurse Corps. He said that he found the podcast from a link on emsflightcrew.com and that he is addicted and to keep up the good work. He also asked if I could do a future show on military flight patient care. Thank you, Robert, and while I would not support addiction to anything, I am glad you are enjoying the podcast. I wrote back to Robert on his suggestion for an episode on military air medical and will be working on a program in the future. I also wanted to let our listeners know that all episodes of the podcast continue to be downloaded as more members of our air medical and critical care transport community find out about the show. I was telling Dr. Bill Gerard this week that his show on Rescue 911 in Episode 2 continues to be one of the top downloaded podcasts. Remember, I do want to hear from you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have suggestions for future guests. I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast. Also remember that if your program or service has a Facebook fan page, to be sure that it is linked at the Air Medical Today Facebook page, please just email or call me if it is not. I've been trying to identify all air medical and critical care transport fan pages on Facebook so it is easier for others to find you. Let's talk about some recent news affecting the air medical world. In Haitian earthquake news, President Obama this week renewed America's commitment to the recovery and reconstruction of the earthquake-devastated Haiti, telling visiting President René Preval he knows the crisis has not passed. 
After an Oval Office meeting, Obama stood beside Preval in the Rose Garden to praise the Haitian leader's courage and the heroic work of Americans who rushed to help as rescue workers or other generous donations. Obama said that the challenge now was to prevent a second disaster with the start of the rainy season in a country where masses of people are still without shelter. Remember, I continue to track news on members of our air medical community who are volunteering their time in Haiti, so please email me and I will include the story in a future episode. As stated earlier in the On the Scene section, I will be speaking with Kathy Nichols about her recent experience in Haiti. In healthcare reform news, Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius said last Sunday that healthcare reform would have been dead on arrival if the White House had sent a finished proposal to Congress last year. The secretary also blamed delays in passing the measure on President Obama having to spend far too much time talking about what's not in the bill and trying to counter wild accusations by Republicans. Under a new push to get the measure through Congress, Obama set a March 18th deadline for the House to pass the Senate version of the legislation before he leaves on a trip to Asia. President Obama kicked off this past week with a final push to salvage the health care overhaul plan uh, that faces opposition from the public and resistance from members of his own Democratic Party. While Obama has brought the effort back from the brink of failure, he still faces hurdles. Republicans are united in opposition, and Democratic lawmakers unhappy with the legislation won't be reassured by polls showing that a majority of Americans also oppose it. Obama laid down the path forward last week, saying Congress owes Americans a final vote. To do that, Democrats plan to use a budget process called reconciliation that requires a simple majority in the Senate, which Democrats control with 59 of the 100 seats. House and Senate Democrats have already passed versions of comprehensive health legislation. Obama now wants the House to approve the Senate measure and both chambers to pass another bill under reconciliation, making changes that House members want, such as scaling back a tax on high-end insurance plans. Some House Democrats also are concerned the Senate measure doesn't do enough to keep federal funds from being used for abortions. On the other side, progressive Democrats are unhappy that Obama gave up on a new government-run insurance program. Obama met with some of those lawmakers on March 4th and assured them he would take up the issue later. Obama accused insurance companies of placing profits over people and said Republicans ignored long-festering problems when they held power. Creating jobs takes precedent over health care reform, Senator Scott Brown, Republican from Massachusetts, said during a presentation at the National Association of Health Underwriters Annual Capital Conference. Brown, whose special election victory to replace the late Edward Kennedy, essentially derailed the majority's plan to swiftly approve a reform bill, emphasizing that jobs should be the top priority for lawmakers. Everyone deserves basic health care, Brown conceded, but the Democrats' one-size-fits-all government-run approach to reform doesn't make sense. Health care reform legislation is also facing a renewed push against passage by a coalition of business groups, 
uh, who plan to spend as much as $1 million a day on advertisements to pressure lawmakers into opposing the bill. The campaign will last about 10 days and cost between $4 million and $10 million, and ads will start on national cable television and run in 17 states, according to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, who is helping lead the effort. Business groups say that Democratic legislation will hurt companies by adding new taxes and requirements while failing to control medical costs. Ads are targeting House Democrats who voted no on the original legislation or voted yes with reluctance. The 248 groups in the coalition include members of the manufacturing, construction, and health insurance industries. Democrats are facing increasing pressure on all sides. Hundreds of demonstrators yesterday came to Washington to push for a health care bill. Meanwhile, organizers of the anti-overhaul Tea Party group said they plan to pressure lawmakers with a March 16th Take the Town Halls to Washington project. Insurers say that the proposed penalties for people who don't get insurance are too weak in the Senate bill and will result in higher premiums as companies try to make up for losses. Amid consumer complaints over rising health insurance premiums, the Obama administration asked insurers last Thursday to post rate hikes and the justification for them on the Internet. Also on Thursday, Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democratic California, introduced legislation that would give the federal government authority to reject rate increases that insurance companies cannot justify. The developments come as President Obama intensifies his push for legislation to overhaul the country's health care system, with escalating premiums his central talking point. Kathleen Sebelius met with top executives of the country's largest health insurance firms. This includes the CEO of WellPoint, whose California subsidiary, Anthem Blue Cross recently triggered a political firestorm when it raised rates by as much as 39% for thousands of customers. The rate hikes have spurred public outcry. Politicians in California and Washington have seized on them as an argument for overall legislation and wider regulation of the health insurance industry. California's insurance commissioner, unlike commissioners in at least 25 other states, does not have the authority to regulate premiums. President Obama this week signed an order expanding the use of high-tech bounty hunters to help root out health care fraud, which he said is costing taxpayers over $100 billion a year. Virginia lawmakers have passed legislation that aims to thwart any federal requirement that individuals buy health insurance. At least 29 state houses are considering a similar so-called Health Care Freedom Act but Virginia is the first to approve the bill. Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell, a Republican, is expected to sign it. The bill states that no law shall impose a penalty, tax, or fine upon an individual who declines to contract for health care coverage or to participate in a health care system or plan. Part of the health care reform requires individuals to carry health insurance or pay a fine. Health insurers have said that without this requirement, premiums will continue to rise because people would only purchase coverage after they fall ill. 
Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid formally informed Republican Senator Mitch McConnell on Thursday that he will use the budgetary process of reconciliation to try and pass a final round of changes to the health care bill. Republicans have warned Democrats against using reconciliation to pass a health care bill they say is highly unpopular with the American public. But Reid said Republicans were distorting the facts, and, and he pointed out that the vast majority of the bills where the procedure was used in the past to pass legislation, including George Bush's massive budget-busting tax breaks for multimillionaires, were orchestrated by Republican Congresses. In other news... The Senate this past Wednesday agreed to the motion to proceed to the long-delayed FAA reauthorization bill. The action clears the way for lawmakers to begin offering amendments. Senator Bob Corker from Tennessee has placed a hold on the bill, however, over a controversial provision in the House-passed version of the bill that would make it easier for certain FedEx workers to organize. The Next Generation Air Transport System, or NextGen, is the name given to the new national airspace system due for implementation across the United States in stages between 2012 and 2025. The plan was released this week, and to implement it, the FAA will undertake a wide-ranging transformation of the entire United States air transportation system. This transformation has the aim of reducing gridlock, both in the sky and at the airports. NextGen consists of five elements, automatic dependent surveillance broadcast, system-wide information management, next-generation data communications, next-generation network-enabled weather, and NAS voice switch. The FAA primary goal is to provide new capabilities that make air transportation safer and more reliable improve the capacity of the national airspace system, and reduce aviation's impact on the environment. The FAA already has achieved a number of critical next-gen milestones. They have initiated and expanded satellite-based surveillance, improved airport runway access, increased safety and efficiency on the ground, and enhanced airspace safety and operation. Next-gen technologies and procedures, along with the airspace redesign, have enabled more direct routes and more efficient operations, which use less fuel and reduce emissions. With Next-gen, the FAA will continue to advance safety as it looks ahead at increasing air traffic and the introduction of very light jets, unmanned aircraft systems, and commercial space flights. The FAA remains confident it will achieve next-gen, but they are fully aware that the road to success will be challenging. Undertaking next-gen is extremely complex, in part because systems are in various stages of development and maturity and are independent and will be implemented in a variety of time frames. The Virginia State Police helicopters are receiving money met for local emergency crews. The state's General Assembly's money committees put their two-year spending plans on the table last week. Local fire and rescue crews thought they had a $5.2 million problem, but this Wednesday it looks like it was closer to $25 million over two years. The governor proposed to shift $10 million a year to the state police from the fund financed by a fee on motor vehicle registrations to support emergency medical services. 
The state has been draining the fund for several years now to support the department's emergency medical helicopter operation, MedFlight. Two days after making the proposal, the governor backed down in the face of opposition from local emergency medical responders who deluged the administration with phone calls and emails. The decision to withdraw the recommendation leaves a proposal to divert an additional $1 million a year from the fund to help pay for med flight operations in Richmond and two other parts of the state. The state already is taking $1.6 million from the fund, which fire and rescue crews rely on for equipment grants and paramedic training, among other things. Emergency medical service helicopters may be key to protecting half the U.S. population from the effects of a stroke, according to Dr. Daniel Hankins, president of the Association of Air Medical Services, in reference to a recently released study. The research, led by Dr. Brendan Carr, University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, noted that 45% of Americans, or approximately 135 million people, live more than one hour's drive from a primary stroke center, where urgent care can save lives or minimize a stroke's effects. The study establishes a need to include stroke victims in protocols that call for helicopter transport. Currently, helicopter EMS missions focus on trauma patients. The study has yet to be formally published. It was presented recently at an international conference on strokes. PHI Inc. reported financial results for the year ending December 31, 2009. The air medical segment revenues were $160.1 million and operating income was $6 million compared with revenues of $174.7 million and operating income of $5.1 million for the year ending December 31, 2008. Segment revenues decreased by $14.6 million for 2009 compared to 2008. The decrease in air medical segment operating revenues was due to decreased patient transports in the independent provider programs and the closure of six bases that were generating less than acceptable transport volumes. The improvement in air medical operations income was due to reductions in costs, but also due to a pre-tax credit of $3.6 million related to the termination of a manufacturer's warranty program. Flight hours in the air medical segment were 33,483 for the year compared to 36,732 flight hours for the year ending December 31, 2008. Patient transports were 19,798 for 2009 compared to 22,647 for 2008. Air Methods Corporation also reported revenue and net income for the year ending December 31, 2009. For the year, revenue increased 2% to $510.6 million compared to $498.8 million in the prior year. Net income increased 50% from $19.3 million, or $1.54 per diluted share, in the prior year to $29 million, or $2.33 per diluted share in the current year. Prior year revenue included $7.7 million related to hurricane response services provided under a contract with the Federal Emergency Management Agency. No such revenue was generated in 2009. 
Current year results include pre-tax gains from a disposition of assets of $0.6 million compared with pre-tax gains of $2.9 million in the prior year. American Eurocopter announced this week that three new EC-135s have entered service with the MedCenter Air Program at Carolinas Medical Center. The aircraft, which were purchased in late 2009, were completed by Metro Aviation and include state-of-the-art cockpit technology as well as the latest medical equipment. In addition to accommodating one or two litters, the EC-135s are equipped with a neonatal sled, balloon pump, and liquid oxygen. MedCenter Air has three bases that serve parts of North and South Carolina. The helicopter fleet of four EC-135s flies 2,000 hours annually. From Canada, integrating ambulance services more closely with the healthcare system is the most logical and appropriate way to enhance patient care and renew the British Columbia Ambulance Service, Health Services Minister Kevin Falcon announced. Over the past year, frontline paramedics made it abundantly clear that the current system is broken and fundamental change is necessary to improve emergency services across the province, particularly in rural and remote areas. Under the new approach, oversight for the Emergency Health Services Commission and the BCAS will be transferred to the Provincial Health Services Authority. The decision is based in part on a month-long consultation on options for a new service delivery models identified in a report from Industrial Inquiry Commissioner Chris Trumpy. The consultation focused on three options outlined in the commissioner's report, including closer integration with the health system, closer integration with other emergency service providers, and opportunities for private sector service delivery. From England, fundraisers at Derbyshire, Lectonshire, and Rutland Air Ambulance spoke out after learning that more than £1.2 million raised last year was spent on wages and marketing. In protest, volunteers at the charity's headquarters in Derby say they will go when their contracts expire and have complained to the charity commission, but managers say they have introduced a more commercial mindset which turned £400,000 deficit into a fundraising drive which brought in £5 million in the past year. The service relies on public donation for 95% of its running costs, with the rest coming from sales of merchandise. According to the charity's 2008 annual report, Chief Executive Andy Williamson was paid between £110,000 and £120,000 a year. Mr. Williamson said those attacking the charity do not have all the facts, and it is sad that in some cases a negative slant has been put on the hard work and progress that has been made over the past few years. There are nine full-time and four part-time staff members at the center in Derby, plus 140 volunteers. Campaigners claim that six volunteers are planning to walk out and that many more will follow. To celebrate his 65th birthday, MedFlight President Rod Crane led the way in a blood drive at the company headquarters in Columbus, Ohio this past week. Rod is a longtime blood donor and a board member of the American Red Cross in central Ohio. 
What's more, he leads a nonprofit company whose mission is squarely focused on saving lives. MedFlight of Ohio transports about 7,000 critically ill and injured patients each year to hospitals throughout the state. Staff made his birthday cake fashioned like a Medicare card, complete with the boss's name and age. Rod was awarded in 2008 the annual Special Contribution Award by the Red Cross Society of China in Beijing after he helped prepare emergency services for the 2008 Summer Olympics. Happy birthday, Rod. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is incorporated into the Facebook page. In first response today, I will be talking to Kathy Nichols, a former flight nurse with West Michigan Air Care who just recently returned from a medical mission to Haiti. Kathy joined West Michigan Air Care when the program was formed through the merger of Borges and Bronson Hospital helicopter programs in 1993. She had been a flight nurse for 23 years and served as an emergency department nurse for 20 years prior to her flight nurse career. She continues serving as an instructor for PALS and ACLS. Kathy's current goal is traveling independently with various groups for medical care missions in developing countries. Her recent travels have included Tanzania in November 2009 and Haiti in late February and early March. She is a graduate of the Borges School of Nursing and Western Michigan University with degrees in nursing. Kathy is a past president of the National Flight Nurses Association Michigan chapter. I had the honor and privilege of working with Kathy when I was the president and CEO of West Michigan Air Care from 1993 through 1998. Welcome, Kathy, and thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure. Kathy, you retired in 2008, but it seems like from your schedule you are as busy as ever. What is your inspiration now for working in developing countries? Well, I think it kind of goes back to the fact that uh, when I graduated from nursing school, my immediate goal was to go and work in the Peace Corps, but somehow I ended up married raising kids instead. (laughs) So uh, now that my children are gone from home, it's my turn to do this kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah, I had the same motivation. I didn't uh, end up in the Peace Corps, but I was a VISTA volunteer for two years, and that's actually how I got into healthcare. So. I understand. What group did you work with to coordinate your latest mission to Haiti? Well, initially, uh, when the earthquake happened in January, like most other professional healthcare people, you're just drawn to watching what's going on. And I applied uh, to the Red Cross and some other other online uh, places and was told I was one of 10,000. And so I was wondering if I would ever get get over there. But I did uh, talk with a physician that uh, I used to work with um, in Kalamazoo at Borges Hospital, and he referred me to another physician who had just returned uh, from a trip. And I contacted him by email, and he gave me the name of uh, Crudum Foundation, which is an established uh, foundation. It's based in Boston. And they have actually established a hospital in Milo, Haiti, M-I-L-O-T, which is uh, about 75 miles north of Port-au-Prince. 
and mm-hmm. uh, it was not damaged in the earthquake. And uh, it was a, it's a small hospital. It's only about uh, 75 beds or so, but um, it was a, they were able to expand it um, across the street into a series of tents to care for some of the patients uh, in Port-au-Prince who were transferred there uh, by military helicopter. I see. And what does CRUDEM stand for? CRUDEM is an acronym. Uh, it stands for Center for Rural Development of Milo, as I said, is a is a city in uh, in Haiti, and uh, it's uh, an established medical hospital there. It has um, several uh, physicians that work that are Haitian. Um, it not only uh, provides medical services to the people of the region, but it uh, it also provides about 250 jobs for the people in Milo, and uh, it's staffed by, uh, as I said, uh, physicians from um, Haiti, uh, from Milo and around, and also uh, American physicians and other countries that go there for weeks out of the year to provide clinics and special specialty services for the people. And this has and been going I, on I, well before the earthquake. Right. This has been going on since 1983. Uh, the hospital was established, I believe, in 1993. So it was it was already set up. Uh, yeah. Is it religious based, Kathy? It's uh, it's Catholic based, mm-hmm. um, and it uh, there are a group of nuns that stay there on site as well, and uh, they're they're like wonderful PR people and. Uh, the uh, the board members uh, they meet on a regular basis. In fact, while I was there, they had a meeting in St. Louis, their annual board meeting, and uh, are looking at ways um, to expand uh, to uh, keep the flow of resources that are coming in since the earthquake. Uh, using those resources to uh, build some new operating rooms and uh, update uh, update many of the uh, facilities there. Let's see. Um, well, describe some of the uh, the facility itself and the capabilities of the hospital there in Malo. And and you said it was not damaged earthquake. That's correct. Uh-huh. Um, there are. It's a full. You know, it's a regular hospital. Um, they have uh, facilities for OB. Uh, they have a good, wonderful laboratory. They have two operating rooms, a recovery room, an mm. eight-bed uh, ICU, uh, and they they run clinics uh, almost continuously. Even during the uh, while while I was there, the the clinics were being run concurrently with all the care that was going on across the street in this huge area that was uh, that all these tents were constructed to care for the 400 and so 400 or so earthquake victims that were there. So that that was continuing on. Um, logistically, it was um, it was a big change for obviously for the physicians and nurses that work there that are Haitian, and uh, that was that was one very interesting aspect of it because uh, they were they let up, they let us do the primary care and they were uh, secondary to all the the surgeries and the, the wound care that was going on. I see. So they actually, uh, how, how big is the hospital itself? How many beds? It's about, it's about seventy-five beds. Seventy-five, and so then they normally. built 
tents then to care for the uh, victims of the earthquake? Well, there were military tents set up um, across from the hospital in a huge field. Uh, there were six tents set up, and mm-hmm. then there were some other buildings um, that were being used for patient care. And each tent uh, would have like 35 cots in it. And uh, b- prior to me, me getting there, I guess the weeks before, they pretty much had people laying on the ground, but they finally got enough cots for all the patients to get up off the ground. And uh, they'd have tents for men and tents for women, and then they had a huge another area for the children. Wow. Did you primarily work in the tent area when you were there? I, I, I did. I worked, mm-hmm. um, I worked in one of the, the tents, um, and I also worked in what they called the emergency tent, which doubled as the pharmacy supply tent. And uh, at one end was, were all of those supplies, and at the other end were six or so cots that they reserved for patients being brought in by helicopter to be assessed uh, prior to assigning them to a, a regular tent. And there were still patients being brought while I was there. Wow. Where were they being transferred from? Well, um, there's a uh, University of Miami has a, a unit in Port-au-Prince or near Port-au-Prince, mm. and they are caring for patients there. Their, their facilities, from what I understand, the hospitals there are just now starting to get back in a functioning mode. So there were patients there with, with fractures and uh, injuries that needed needed treatment that were beyond the capabilities of who of the physicians there in Port-au-Prince. And uh, the day that I, after I arrived, there was a team of, of doctors, a cardiothoracic surgeon and a group of a couple of orthopedic surgeons that actually flew over to Port-au-Prince to identify some patients that potentially could have surgery in Milo at our hospital um, and then be transferred back to Port-au-Prince. And that's what that's what they identified. So we got several of those patients when I was working in that tent that were brought in uh, to, to have procedures done. I see. Well, tell us, I mean, um, since the hospital was, was there, did you have problems with uh, access to equipment and supplies? That Supplies and equipment were probably one of the most difficult things initially because uh, the setup for each tent was that they had their own little supply of dressings and medications and so forth. Uh, and then there was uh, more more of a supply in the in the first tent, the tent one, which was the emergency supply tent. And then there was a large uh, storage facility down the road at a place called the compound where we stayed um, and and slept. And this depot area was uh, extremely um, full of supplies that had been sent. Uh, prior to me getting there. And indeed, some more came while I was there, but they'd come in these big cardboard boxes and it would, you know, you'd have to open them to see what was in them and sort them. And I did that one day too. I worked in the depot and mm-hmm. tried to sort through some of the equipment and supplies. And then there was another room that was pharmacy that also had a lot of different uh, supplies. So transporting those around to the different tent areas was logistically um possible, but it was 
you know, about the time you got the handle on everything, it was time to go home. <laughs> well, I, I had heard, you know, initially they had trouble getting equipment and supplies. Sounds like at least you had some. There, there was a lot of some things, and there was other. There were other things uh, that we, you know, were struggled to find in the boxes. We we knew things were there, but um, there there have been some amazing um, uh, donations of of large medical pieces from different companies. And uh, the the issue is that the need will be ongoing. And uh, Crudum has a wonderful website that uh, people can go to and. Um, find out what the needs are, and find out how supplies over there. Many of the teams that went uh, to Haiti were 15 to 20 people teams from big uh, university medical centers, and uh, for instance, Boston and North Carolina, I believe, and uh, Texas. They they were wonderful, incredible volunteers, uh, physicians, nurses, physical therapists, um, they would come and they would bring supplies with them. So the orthopedic surgeons, for instance, would bring their own specialty equipment, and that I was see. so helpful. Yeah. Well, since you were talking about the teams, describe um, who was there with you as far as the, uh, the the team that went down with you and then also the other teams that were there, and uh, where were they from and what were their backgrounds and capabilities? Oh, interesting that you say my team because my team was me. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I was the team of one, <laughs> but uh, immediately I was, you know, adapted into everyone that was there. I mean, it was just the uh, the cream of the crop, just wonderful volunteers. Everybody had big smiles on their faces. Everybody was so, you know, everybody that volunteered there was just, we all had the same mentality. We wanted to do what we can while we were there to our physical and emotional capabilities. Yes. And we debriefed with each other every meeting there would be a, uh, or every evening there would be a, a meeting where we would discuss uh, ongoing problems and just some incredible um, ethical discussions on, on what could and should be done. And uh, it was all overlaid by this, this uh, Catholic, I don't want to just say Catholic, but by this <laughs> wonderful sense of, of what you know, what should and could be done, and uh, it was always uh, a person from the board of Crudum there that would direct the meeting, and uh, they would be uh, physicians, and so it was uh, definitely uh, you know over overlooked as being done the right way and the correct way, and what should and shouldn't be done from a humanitarian point of view. Um, the teams that came were, as I said, orthopedic surgery teams with their, they bring their scrub nurses with them. Uh, there were pediatric uh, intensivists. There were uh, teams that brought uh, physical therapy with them, uh, which is a big need right now as these wounds begin to heal. And uh, the next need that I can see would be for more emotional support for the patients because they're about seven to eight weeks out now from injury, and many of them are still very frightened and uh, very stressed about the situation. Mm-hmm. Where did you stay? Where did they put the teams up at? Did you Were you sleeping in a tent? Well, some people were in tents. Um, there were, as I said, there's a compound area which consists of a series of buildings uh, about a block down from the hospital and the tent area. And uh, they had 
cots for us with uh, mosquito netting. And uh, some, there were a couple of rooms where there were three or four beds, you know, in there together. So I moved from a library area after the first five nights to a, a room that had uh, three beds and our own bathroom. And I felt like I was moving into a palace. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well taken care of. Um, we were fed. There were employees of the hospital that would cook for us uh, three meals a day. Uh, we had plenty of water and Gatorade powder uh, to drink, which was very important because it was very, very warm and humid there. And uh, we were well taken care of as volunteers. They they really did the best they could to you know provide for us. And they're getting into the rainy season now too. Is that was that a problem? That, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, when I was there, it rained almost. Well, it rained at least four or five days that I was there. Mm. One day it rained quite hard all day, and everything turned into mud. So yeah. that was that was messy. Yeah. How was, uh, you know, you heard initially uh, there was problems with just general sanitation and, you know, uh, lack of sterile conditions. What was your experience? Well, personally, we we had, uh, where we stayed was fine. It was, there were sinks and water and everything like that that we could wash in. Uh, at the hospital, the the uh, water supply for the patients was bottled water that we would supply them mm-hmm. um and there the wonderful thing about the Haitian people is that their families stayed right there with them took care of their their bathroom needs their bathing their feeding and kept their clothing clean they're just they're just joyous people they're just they're so giving and caring uh there were there, you know, there are obviously with sick people, there's a lot of secretions and things that have to be disposed of. And I know they have an um, incinerator that they use. Uh, there was also uh, work uh, construction going on when I was there with a system, um, uh, a septic system they are actually building right there where the patient tents were. So um, they're, they're very aware uh, of what needs to be done, and it was a work in progress. I see. Tell us a little bit about the challenges and barriers to effective, you know, patient care and communication. I mean, what what did you run up against? Well, first of all, I don't speak Creole at all. (laughs) That's what the Haitian people speak. Uh, The hospital had hired some local people uh, that were pretty good at, uh, you know, doing uh, translating and working with us. They they weren't there. 100% 100% of the time, every like every person working with the patients didn't have a translator by their side. So uh, that was that for me. That was difficult. Um, most of them understood some sign language, just common things like you know, I'm going to start an IV or take this pill. I mean, you could you could kind of work your way through that, but mm-hmm. it was definitely a challenge um, to communicate with the patients and where the the translators I think were most used were when something had to happen, like somebody had to move somewhere or uh, you took someone to surgery, you needed someone there to explain to the patient what was going to be happening so that you had informed consent. Um, But there there were a a large group of very, very um, dedicated uh, Haitian translators that that we worked with. So that that was one one barrier and one way that we worked on it. 
for me, one of the biggest problems was uh, adjusting to the climate. You know, Michigan this time of year is yeah. is cold, and uh, I went from you know wearing layers to uh, being thrust into 100 degrees and you know 90 percent humidity um, very quickly, becoming you know losing body fluids through through sweat uh, you know during the day, and it, you know you had to struggle to keep keep your you know to keep hydrated. Um, so that was. That and working in that those kind of conditions were physically demanding, um, especially you know the older you get, the harder it is to do that. But even even the younger team members would be, you know, so a few had problems with uh, you know just the demanding physical part of it. And then the other, I won't say barrier, but the other challenge was just the emotion of of dealing with with these people who have been you know for even before the earthquake were struggling with political and social issues. And uh, then now you take away their home. And uh, for me, I had to stay focused on my tasks and not look at the big picture uh, so that I could get through the day. And then we'd come back and we'd debrief and, you know, cry a little bit and, uh, you know, be ready for the next day. Yeah. You had the immediate needs that you had to take care of. Um, That's right. How did you find, uh, you, you commented on this a little bit, but how did you find the, the Haitian people in general? I mean, what was their emotional state? They were, they were, they would look at you. The eyes, uh, there's something about the Haitian eyes. They're, they're beautiful eyes. They're, they're dark. And one of the, one of the um, sisters, one of the nuns, had had spoken about this at one of her on one of the daily daily reflections they would have at these meetings, and they did. They were they were piercing. They looked at you with such trust and such, uh, you know, gratitude. I'm not sure exactly what they were thinking, but they they're they're so non-complaining. I mean, there would be people in these tents with external fixators and, and pain and they had to have had pain and yet when you ask them if they were having pain they'd they'd say no and they'd smile um they're just they're so stoic and so um just gentle thankful mm. people to have someone there taking care of them it was just it, it was humbling it was just downright humbling for me yeah I can imagine uh, emotional for you too. Um. It, yeah, there was there was uh, there, like I say, there were times where you just you know you you know that the people you were taking care of had you know had had lost their entire families. Some of them, there were children there that were orphaned. There were uh, people from Haiti that had lost most or many of their family members, and indeed that's one of the issues they're looking at right now because the patients in the tents uh, in Milo don't, many of them don't want to go back to Port-au-Prince. They want to stay, stay there because they've established new little family units uh, in the tents. There's, there's quite a camaraderie in those tents. They're like little communities. And, uh, you know, the, the plan is to find some kind of a, uh, another place to, to to put uh, like refugees while they're, getting fitted for prosthesis and, and that kind of thing for their amputations. Um, and that's, everything is ongoing, everything is evolving. So the needs there at Milo are going to, are going to be there for months and um, maybe even years. And uh, 
the need for um, people to come down and work there are, are going to be is going to be there for quite a while. So I would encourage anyone who's thinking of doing this um, to go to the Crudum website, um, www.crudum.org, and just look at some of the uh, some of the resources there. Uh, look in the volunteer blog. There's some wonderful videos of what goes on there, and you'll see the smiles of the Haitian people. You'll see the smiles of the people working there, and um, it's. I would recommend it. In fact, I'm really seriously considering considering finding some people and going back in the fall. Yeah, I, I was that was going to be a question of mine. I was wondering. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and along those lines, how did you, I, I know you were in Tanzania and in Africa, how did this differ? Um, you know, I, they're, they're both developing countries, but this, Haiti, I would imagine, is developing country that, you know, in crisis with the earthquake and then having lost even what they had, which wasn't much. That's exactly right. Uh, mm-hmm. In in Africa, I was in, a ten, I was in, a, in Tanzania in a Maasai village. Uh, working more or less a, a day clinic position, um, and people there again are, you know, totally at not anywhere near what we are as far as what they have to eat and and so forth. But at least they weren't in crisis; they were in their normal state. Um, I found this much more intense um, in more ways than one. Intense. T E N T S and I N T E N S E. Yeah. Um, but um, the the difference being um, these this is acute medical care uh, needs. Um, there were you know wounds that were infected. There were uh, fractures that had been fixed that were infected. There were um, you know there's ongoing uh, care needs right now. Whereas in Africa, it was it's just kind of a global a global need, and uh, both were very fulfilling. Um, it's hard to you know it's just such a small part of what what goes on in the world. I've only seen two places, and I know that you know for as much problem as we have with healthcare in, in the United States, it's it's uh, it, it just makes it just makes the problems here seem so minor compared yes. to what what most people go through or don't have. Right. Well, let's talk uh, a little bit about uh, medical transport. Uh, You worked with a German medical helicopter service when you were there. Uh, Tell us about them, how they happened to be in the the country. Well, you know me, the retired flight nurse. The first (laughs) time I heard the helicopter, I'm like, oh, my radar went up. And I happened to be on a lunch break. So they had a a soccer field um, to the far end of the compound that we lived at, uh, lived in. And uh, I walked over there um, with another nurse that I was with. And uh, this little A-star popped right down there. And these two pilots got out. And I I recognized... Well, it said German help on it, so I figured they probably weren't English, but they, they had spoke some a little bit of English, and uh, it was a uh, a corporate configured uh, A star that they were using to uh, that their company um, and I didn't get the name of the company, but they were from Germany, and their company had donated the helicopter and uh, several pilots for 50 hours of transporting patients between. Uh, Port-au-Prince and uh, Malo, 
and uh, it was it was a godsend for those people because uh, without without a helicopter, they would have had to endure hours of bumpy, incredibly uh, tough roads with all those injuries. So it was really, really wonderful. Um, the pilots were very friendly. Um, I interacted with them a few times, and one day when I was working with supplies, I ended up walking over there, and um, they they landed, and uh, after they moved the patient out, they said, we need help, and the patient had had uh, had an emesis, so I got to go clean a helicopter. <laughs> I saw that picture, yes. Right yeah. at home. <laughs> they were grateful for the help. Um, yeah. And uh, they they actually are the ones that I think took the physicians over to um, uh, Port-au-Prince to identify those other patients. So, and you know, preparing patients, of course, there would be a big ring of of people from below watching that helicopter land because that was, you know, that's something new in that in that area. And uh, um, basically, they would just load the patients in the back, and uh, they would always have a family member with them as well. And it was about a 30-minute flight back to Port-au-Prince. But it was not a medically configured helicopter. No, it wasn't. The patients were um, uh, either sitting in the seats, or if they couldn't, then they were lying on the floor behind the the pilots there. Did you see any other uh, transport that would be for critical care transport? Was there military helicopters coming in or, or other services? I didn't. Yeah, I didn't see any when I was there, but but uh, there are pictures on the website of the, the first few days when they were bringing patients in, and those appeared to be uh, larger helicopters. I think I saw a Dauphine in there um, and possibly some military helicopters. Um, but basically, patient transport from one end of the compound to the other, they had an ambulance that uh, they used uh, Crudum has an ambulance, and they could move patients in that from the helicopter uh, landing area to the um, hospital and the tents. And then anybody that had to move from the tents across the street to the hospital were, were carried on litters by the transport teams, who were really pretty pretty cool. There were four of them, and they picked these patients up on these little transport litters and move them from one place to the other. So it was... Uh, there were no striker beds going around back and forth. Right. Uh, yeah. Basically, you know, hand carried. Well, this has uh, had to have a profound um, uh, effect on you personally. This this whole experience, and I know just by saying you you're going going back again. Um, what? Uh, what what do you think are the next steps? You know, when you were in these debriefing sessions, uh, next steps for Haiti. What what are they going to be able to do to get the infrastructure or to get an infrastructure back in that country? Well, it's it's interesting that um, on my way back, on my flight back, I was uh, I met a a gentleman that was there from the State Department, and uh, that's that's kind of what he's looking at. There are Besides the medical response teams, there's, you know, there are teams from the United States um, looking at ways to deal with that. And mm-hmm. uh, one thing I heard was possibly moving, um, moving from the central aspects of the, in, you know, the city in Port-au-Prince, um, setting up some temporary um, buildings and places for people to live 
on the outskirts uh, so that the infrastructure can actually be demolished and rebuilt. Um, one interesting aspect is that the patients, many of them were terrified to even be inside any building. Yes. And you I can't blame that. them. Yeah. You cannot blame them. Um, some people refuse to go in the hospital, you know, because they don't want to be inside a building. Um, and so uh, my hope is that um, the wonderful volunteers that, that get together, the ones that can build and do things like that, that the buildings will be established that will be uh, able to withstand um, earthquakes. And I think that's the goal, or at least, you know, be structured a little differently so that they don't, wouldn't collapse that way. But uh, the biggest biggest need, you know, for the people that have been in involved in it are, is uh, there's a lot of emotional. There's, you know, CISD teams could just be there for for months. But yeah. again, the problem would be language and uh, being able to communicate directly with the people. Um, there was a pediatrician that uh, was there the last day I was there, and uh, she was um, talking about how she'd handed out papers to the children that were old enough to draw, and uh, many of them were drawing um, helicopters and, and buildings and people missing extremities and, mm. you know, like play therapy. And uh, that's just the kids, you know, the adults are need the same thing. And uh, I, I think that'll be in the next phase of caring for the patients. It'll be uh, fitting them with prosthetic devices, making sure their wounds are healed, and uh, making sure their souls are healed. Yeah, so, so some psychological counseling, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Did you see evidence, Kathy, of of the government in action? Was the infrastructure, did you see um, evidence? Because I know that in the early stages, and as I've been following this, that was not evident. Um, I, you know, I didn't um, see direct evidence um, because I was busy involved either with the patients. Um, I'm, but I would, there were, we had, the hospital had guards at the gate to keep people, you know, only family members in to see the patients. And, uh, um, you know, they weren't armed guards, but, uh, I, you know, I didn't, I did not experience, I, I never felt unsafe there, and uh, I did not see evidence of, of uh, you know, people looting or anything like that. I think, again, because Milo is 75 miles north, the people that live there in that community already, you know, are established and, and uh, don't look to, you know, to do anything like that. Uh, on the other hand, I've, I've heard that Port-au-Prince is still experiencing trouble along that line with, you know, people just trying to trying to get what they need to survive. Right. Um, well, and I, I wasn't was just, not in Port-au-Prince. And I wasn't just looking at security, but I mean, just in general, you know, uh, support from the government uh, in, you know, just social services or uh, food distribution. Um, I did not, I, I didn't experience any of that. I, I don't know what's okay. going on as far as the Haitian government. Um, there are Haitian hospital uh, personnel um, that, that uh, in fact, the CEO of the hospital is, is a Haitian physician. And uh, I did not, because I think he had, uh, he was, he had left for the week or something. Uh, the week that I got there, he had left to go somewhere. Uh, but, um, as far as Haitian government, I didn't experience any 
any interaction or didn't hear anything about what was going on from it, the Haitian government. Yeah, probably where you were at. And then did you fly into Port-au-Prince? Is that where you your flight went I, in? Or? I flew um, on an airline called Lynx Airline, and it was uh, based in Fort Lauderdale. Mm-hmm. So I, I flew from Michigan to Fort Lauderdale and then uh, Fort Lauderdale directly to Cap Haitian, which is a, a city uh, right on the coast. And Cap Haitian's about 15 miles um, north of where the hospital um, I see. Compound was so you so didn't I went by ground. Yeah, so you didn't get to see uh, any of the devastation of the earthquake. No, I didn't. Um, mm-hmm. The group of physicians that went over there uh, earlier in the week um, did, and they said it was it was pretty impressive as far as uh, the buildings just being crumbled. Um, interestingly, one of the healthcare professions professionals I worked with is a Haitian surgeon, general surgeon that lives in Port-au-Prince, and he speaks very good English, and he met his sister there that week, and his sister is a PA in New York City, and so they had kind of a little family reunion uh, while they were working uh, at the at the hospital, and uh, he said his house was totally destroyed, his son barely escaped but did, and uh, I said, and you've lost everything, and yet you're here to help, and he says, well, there's Nothing else like I want to do, yeah. or could do at that point because this hospital wasn't functioning. Right. Well, amazing experience. Or anything else that you'd like to to say about your time there? No, I think. Um, well, yes, I think there probably is. It it uh, it was. Um, I'm still processing um, yeah. the whole experience. I've connected. Uh, on the internet, a, a wonderful worldwide connection with um, many of the people that I was there with, and we, uh, you know, were debriefing each other. Um, met some wonderful friends, um, wonderful people that uh, I know are experiencing the same thing, and many of them are talking about uh, heading back there too. Um, I think it's, you know, initially when everybody wants to go over there, I knew in my heart that I couldn't. I couldn't just jump on a plane and go over there. You had to find some kind of organized system. And uh, I think I, I, I lucked upon this, this system. I think it's, uh, it's going to become, um, one, of the, one of the doctors was calling it the little hospital that could. And I think the benefits that this hospital and this foundation are reaping from, from the people that want to do something, um, are, there, there are plans for new storage facility, for new for equipment. There are plans to improve the ICU and the, the surgeries, surgery areas. Um, you know, if, if anything good came out of this earthquake, it's that this hospital will become a a, a bigger center for the people of, of Haiti. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I'm just I'm, I'm very thankful to be a part of what what's going on now and I'm I look forward to seeing what's you know what's going to happen here in the next uh several months and if I go back in the fall to see the improvements and the changes that um have happened um since since my first visit well I'd love to uh catch up with you again if you do go back in the fall let me know and uh I'll get you get you back on the uh podcast cuz I'd love to to hear because uh, to me this is you know a much longer story that's going to keep going on. Absolutely, and I appreciate the opportunity to let people know about what's going on over there. I know everybody kind of wonders, and um, 
I hope I, you know, at least explained a little bit what's going on over there and what the needs continue to be. And I hope other people, you know, can can find some time or some those that want to uh, can find the resource uh, to do something like this because it's wonderfully fulfilling. And as you said, it's not just medical. There's going to be needs for other uh, folks to to volunteer, engineers, etc. Yeah. Everything from from there was a, there were representatives there from hardware stores. There were, wow. there were builders. There were fix it fix it people. There were one of the plastic surgeons brought his wife and daughter, and they helped uh, with supplies. Um, so yes, you don't have to be medical to go over there. Um, just you, you know, if you want to go to a, a place that's established, you can look on the volunteer. Um, part of the website and uh, there's applications there for everything. And I, and I will have that in the show notes. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, you're an absolutely amazing woman and it's been a real pleasure catching up with you as always. Well, thank you, Ed. I appreciate it. And uh, hope everyone has a safe 2010. Today I am interviewing Denise Landis, chairperson, and Chris Nelson, co-director of the Graduate School with the Medical Transport Leadership Institute in Wheeling, West Virginia. Denise Landis is the manager of the Survival Flight Critical Care Transport Program at the University of Michigan Health System, as well as serving as chair at MTLI. She has been with Survival Flight for 25 years, holding the positions of flight nurse specialist, chief flight nurse, and now manager critical care transport. Denise has been the chair of MTLI since its inception. Denise has been actively involved in local, state, and national boards and committees, including being one of the founding members of the Michigan State Chapter of AIMS. She continues involvement with the Michigan Chapter and also with the state chapter of the American Ambulance Association. Denise also served on the Ames Board of Directors and is a past president. She is a graduate of Madonna College in Nursing and completed her Master's of Science in Health Administration from Central Michigan University. Denise resides in Hamburg, Michigan, near Ann Arbor, with her husband, Scott. Chris Nelson is a flight nurse specialist with Survival Flight and also the co-director of the MTLI Graduate School. He has been with Survival Flight since 1987 and joined MTLI after completing the school himself in 2000. Chris received his diploma as a registered nurse from Mercy School of Nursing in Detroit in 1976. He worked at various positions in Michigan, Washington, and Florida before being hired by the University of Michigan in 1985, where he worked as a staff nurse in the emergency department. His interest grew for the field of flight nursing, and in March of 1987, he met all the qualifications and was hired by Survival Flight. In 2006, Chris was honored to be a guest speaker at the Japanese Air Medical Conference in Tokyo, Japan. While in Japan, Chris visited a number of cities and spoke with many groups of physicians, nurses, and medical transport personnel about his experience with flight nursing in the United States. 
Chris has been married to his wife, Michelle, for 30 years, and they have raised two sons, Matthew and Emmett. Michelle and Chris currently live in a log home on five wooded acres, approximately 30 miles from Ann Arbor. He enjoys working on his property, running, snowboarding, and most importantly, spending time with his family. For full disclosure purposes, I was a regent and instructor with MTLI from the beginning of the school through 2008. Welcome, Denise and Chris. Thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. That's great having you. Um, Denise, Don Mancuso touched upon some of the early beginnings of the Medical Transport Leadership Institute uh, in the interview I did with her and Dr. Dan Hankins in Episode 10. Could you, from your perspective, however, talk about how MTLI went from an idea to fruition and who all was been involved over the years? Sure, Ed. This goes back to the late 90s uh, when the Ames Board had chosen to send out a survey uh, to all the Ames membership. And one of the things that had come back was that membership was looking for a general place that they could go for education, whether it be a manual or a course. Um, Unlike the AMTC where there's many options to choose from, something that would be focused on maintaining leadership, developing leadership. So with that um, came Dawn Mancuso to Ames, and she had a history with Parks and Recreation, and they had a course, and it was a course that was in conjunction with a uh, resort in Wheeling, West Virginia, called Ogle Bay. And Ogle Bay's interest in having courses at their resort was to have these courses when the resort was not filled um, um, at times of the year when it was perhaps not possible, like the middle of January. It's it's a beautiful resort. So it's on, I think, three or 4,000 acres, and it is a family resort that has golf courses, Olympic-sized pools, and it's a, a beautiful place to be. So Dawn and I had traveled out to Wheeling, West Virginia, to meet with Bill Kegler, who is their continuing educational coordinator. And so we sat down and, and kind of told them what our AIMS membership was interested at that time. With that, um, we became very eager to take this back to the board who gave us approval to move ahead. So at that time, um, Connie Schneider Easley, who was also very involved with AIMS, she was the president, I was president-elect, we all sat down and we brainstormed um, with Bill's advice to uh, invite five or six um, program directors from around the country uh, to brainstorm an agenda. So uh, we did that, and we met at Ogle Bay. It was, I think, a couple months after our initial meeting and came up with a course that would uh, be in Medical Transport Leadership Institute. And at that time, and what we didn't know is Bill said, great, now that you all developed the curriculum, which courses do you want to teach? So that's how MTLA, MTLI came to being, and then what was either – more interesting is we then went on to develop a second year, and at the end of the second year uh, course, you would graduate with your um, CMTE, which is Certified Medical Transport Executive. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us a little bit about the assistance that you got from Ogle Bay, and especially Bill Kegler, uh, in assisting with the, the start 
of the school and, and how he impacted in helping develop the curriculum? That's a great question and an interesting question because when we all got around the table to talk about a curriculum, um, we tended to say, we looked at ourselves and we looked at both sitting around the table and we had had 10 years plus maybe experience in the medical industry. So what we did was say, well, we wouldn't want to hear that or we wouldn't want to hear that. Would we pay to go hear that? But Bill, being the educator in the group and Dawn having experience in the school, took us back to pretend that everybody is a novice so that our message to the students um, was consistent because our goal was to not only maintain leadership but to develop it. So we did, in fact, do that. And the very first year we did sell out, uh, we had 80-plus students. And while there were some people that said, um, yes, it was uh, the, the information, everybody knows that information, the majority of the feedback was, thank you very much for bringing this education to us. And what we did with Bill's coaxing is he sat us down and said, what do you need to know to run a transport program? Mm -hmm. And basically, that's where we brainstormed and came up with the exact um, lectures. And you actually looked at some of the other schools that are at Ogle Bay and looked at some of their curriculums, too, even though they're not aeromedical, but looked at some of the base uh, studies that they had. Well, yes, we did. And that's where Bill was very helpful because he would he was able to help us set up what our school would entail and when we would have breaks or when we would have whatever and we were, I believe we were the first school that actually had an exam at the end of the first year um, because we wanted to be sure that people were gaining the knowledge that was expected um, because most people in fact all people in the early start of the school they were being sent there by their employer so we wanted to make sure they got bang for their buck and um, and provided consistency. And, and there was a banquet at the end of the week to acknowledge people's, you know, contributions on efforts for that week. So uh, Bill already had a, um, a platform, if you will, for us to fit into, which they had found success over the years. But some of Bill's more successful schools and still continue to be is, for instance, their golf school. And of course, you think, oh, great, you get to go play golf. But it's really not about playing golf. It's about managing um, golf uh, resorts and golf um, uh, golf courses. And it's the managing of, which just like you never think of it because you just go play golf, but there's a lot, anything from getting equipment to cut the lawn to, you know, scheduling people. So we learned about the other schools and then continued to adapt our school to the model. And I know Ogle Bay, kind of their, their early model was sort of helping out the school um, get started. And then there's obviously money now that comes back to Ames that's uh, generated. Uh, off the school. Um, could you talk about where, you know, as far as the number of schools that Ogle Bay has, how large is the uh, MTLI now compar comparatively? Um, well, prior to the economy <laughs> here in the last year or two, mm. um, when we joined the schools, I think, I believe we were the 11th school. So we were the babies. And up I, and even now, I think we are their number two school. So it has gone up. Yeah. Is it the it, golf we school? We have then? gone. Up, 
Um, well, actually, the golf school has dropped down. The school that is now taking the lead, I believe, is, and I'm not sure what school they call it, but they're the folks that run, um, like if you have a big convention center in your town, mm -hmm. they have schools to, to learn how to be, conduct that kind of business. Right. And that school is a very, very popular school, um, and they still are the number one school, but we have been the number two school for quite a few years. Okay. And and you, Denise, you had touched upon the um, approach, and and you mentioned certification. Um, why did the school move that way compared to just having maybe a, a small yearly topical conference? Well, we looked a lot about the professionalism um, that registered nurses have, that physicians have, that executives have, and as we continue to talk about it, we thought, why not? And the other thing that was important to us, that with a certification, and if we could make it to be um, visible, which we have done that through the years, that was one of our goals, that we would certainly hope that people would incorporate this um, certification in job descriptions so that it would uh, be recognized as a, a school that takes two years to complete. It's a week one year, and the second year is a week the next year. So, you know, it's a two-year program, and when anybody makes that kind of commitment, we felt that they need to be rewarded uh, with something. So that's why we developed the certification, and it is turning up in many, many job descriptions for clinical nurse supervisors or managers, program directors, you know, whatever the title at anyone's um, transport program may be. And having a certification means you also have to keep up credits just like you do with any other certification someone might have. So out of that became a graduate school so that there is an opportunity for folks to come and get their continuing education in the leadership for transport at Ogle Bay. Okay. And you talked about that first curriculum and how that modeled and how Bill helped you. Has that changed much over the years? funny that you would ask that. It hasn't changed much. In fact, as I look at the topics every year, or the topics are still relevant for new managers. What we have done is we've kept the topics. We may have changed the name of the topic, you know, like from quality assurance to corporate compliance, or, you know, we've tried mm -hmm. to change the language to the language that's prevalent today. Um, but what we have done, uh, for instance, I, I'll use my lecture in first year, it's um, hiring the transport team. Well, it's still pretty pertinent, and yes, I do talk about hiring, but most everybody's on board with asking open-end questions, you know, when you're doing an interview. So what we, what I have done is incorporate, like, hot issues along the years. Um, I worked at an institution where we do have um, bargain for staff, so I have built that into my lecture, uh, just like uh, Chris Nelson, one of the regents you're going to hear from, he does the safety culture um, uh, monograph. And mm -hmm. so what he's done is build in the new language, SMS, and talks a little bit about that in this class. So what we haven't really changed the, the uh, focus of first year, but what we've done is change the lectures, okay. depending on what are the hot topics. 
What is the mission of MTLI? What's the stated mission? And I, now you're really testing my. I know it's, I know it's <laughs> on the you, you should know website. this by heart here. I, know. I, I don't know this by heart. That's what I am sorry to say. Um, I, I think I'm at Okay. Uh, I will take some help. Go ahead. Uh, it's, it's, basic, it's basically the mission uh, is, is to enhance leadership and, and you know, management skills in, in medical transport um, with education, formal education, and, and using theory and, and direct you know, application of those theories. So. Yeah. Okay. And people can find that. It's on, there's a section on the Ames website that has all the uh, information about MTLI. And I'll have that in the show notes, too. Um, I, I know you both have written a number of monographs over the years, but Chris, maybe you could explain how this process works and what the instructor regent's responsibilities are, you know, not just with the monograph, but with teaching and the whole process of MTLI. I, I think it starts very basically with one's interest in uh, some of the topics. We certainly have... Uh, a lot of meetings and, and sit down and review, uh, as Denise said, you know, looking at each of the uh, topics and what's what's going to be uh, used for the curriculum, although they haven't changed significantly over the years, the content certainly is subject to change. Mm -hmm. And we look at that and uh, some people have, have an interest. Uh, at one point I was teaching competency-based education and, and I was fascinated by the idea of just not formalized rote learning, but in fact wanted to know how the competency-based uh, side of that equation worked. And so I started looking into uh, uh, programs that did that and found out that in Australia and New Zealand, and uh, it was trialed out west somewhere, and then again in, on the East Coast, uh, that the education systems had looked at competency-based, see one, do one, teach one, essentially. And that, uh, that interested me, so I, I opted to uh, take that on board and uh, did, did a lot of research. So there was a lot of time intensive looking at uh, what's out there, what's uh, the theory behind it, uh, looking at who believes in it and who doesn't, who supports it, uh, seeing some of the politics with the uh, current education system, how they view competency-based versus just normal rote teaching, um, and then taking that information and trying to filter it down and saying how does it, how is it rather applicable to medical transport systems and what do we do within our transport systems. And we do teaching all the time. Uh, a brand new person coming in has to learn new equipment or new procedures and not necessarily just on the clinical side, but uh, the operations. And, and uh, so we would uh, took that and uh, looked at how it applied to the uh, medical transport system. Uh, adapted it there, and uh, then sat down to literally write out a chapter or a monograph and uh, set it up and reviewed it. And uh, I suppose as anyone writing a chapter for a book or something, you have someone take a look at it. Denise looked at it, uh, you know, had other people look at it. Uh, does it seem to flow correctly? And then bring it in, set it up, and get it out there in the monograph. And finally take that information then and bring it from the monograph into an audience, bring it out to them with, you know, a presentation on slide presentation and, and make it a discussion and, and get across salient points so that they can get by the test, but more importantly, teach the information that you're trying to get across. Um, each of these monographs that you develop uh, is a significant time in research and uh, looking to see what's already out there. Um, 
many of these ideas have been researched extensively before. We want to bring this, or at least my intent was to bring it into the focus of medical transport. Mm -hmm. And those monographs then are put on a CD, I think, in what the early years we printed them, but uh, they're put on a CD and sent out to the students in advance. So they're expected to read those before they come, correct? They're expected to read those. We get the CDs out to them. Everybody's monographs have a, a deadline. Denise makes sure that uh, we have those turned in and are reviewed, and then they are uh, put on a CD. And uh, some of the students bring them in and put them on their laptops. Uh, uh, most print them out so that they can follow along during the lectures. And, uh, yeah, they have them with them. It's a pretty uh, significant uh, book. Mm -hmm. And so you, you you spoke about this a little bit, but uh, the regions get together, uh, I know, for some conference calls, but you also have a sort of an off-year, uh, yearly meeting that it's just the regions, and you look at, uh, you know, examining um, some of the feedback that you've received from students in the classes, uh, you know, go over the test questions and, uh, you know, refresh any curriculum ideas. Can you tell us about that meeting? We have a mid-year in December, and um, what we do is um, I take a good look at um, all the evaluation material that was submitted at the end of our school year for first year, second year, and grad school. Um, um, I look at the evaluations. We look at the evaluations per each region and or instructor. Um, I focus on the curriculum, any suggestions for changes. Um, I kind of look at the stuff that relates right to Ogle Bay, uh, and Bill will then take any of those kinds of issues forward to his side of the house. But what we're looking for is interest for people. And first and second year, that's where we get our ideas. Well, maybe we should incorporate in this, instead of having a whole course change, we might incorporate, as I mentioned before, ideas into someone's lecture depending on where the suggestion came from. So that would be first and second year. Um, grad school is different and um, what Chris does and his colleague Greg, um, they actually do a survey right there, right while people are at the school, asking for, if you could come back next year, what would you like to hear? And that's how grad school is developed. So we have no cookie-cutter program that's presented every year at grad school. It's based on the feedback of the folks that attended school that year, and then plans are made for the upcoming year. Okay. So we do that right on site so that Chris and Greg and I and whomever may be interested can begin working on the grad school immediately finishing our school at the end of April. So by the time we come to mid-year, um, we've already got people registered for grad school. So grad school is the only thing a little bit different where we start immediately. And, that's and then the, if we need to change it, and then if we need to change any classes, like, you know, so, you know, people hated hearing me talk about whatever I talked about. So maybe I, maybe I had to change it up and take another course. So we've actually had some people, we've moved around the regions to do other topics. Um, and that's been kind of fun too. Hmm. So um, we do it as a group. And it's a day and a half meeting, and um, we dig in and, and get our work done so that we can get home and get ready for the holidays. We usually have a meeting the first week in December. So, yeah, And that allows enough time for people to adjust their monographs and 
Um, well, yes, or, or because out of that meeting, that's when really the work starts for the most of the regions. Once school ends, it's kind of like, hey, see everybody uh, in December, you know, have a good summer, whatever. Um, because as you know, people like us, we're usually last minute people. So to give a deadline when we leave school the end of May or the end of April, it just doesn't work. Mm. So in December, we usually say, okay, first blush for any changes to the monographs, test questions need to be done and to submit it to either me or Natasha at Ames by January 15th. The second deadline date is January 16th, the actual drop data. So that's when I, so people's work starts after that meeting and then they start getting more emails from me um, until we can get all those kinds of things wrapped up. Yeah, yeah. Denise, let's talk about the regions a little bit. Um, when this, and it gets back to when the school started, uh -huh. um, the regions are people that work uh, or the regents and instructors are people that work in the air medical community. Um, why was this done rather than experts, you know, in a field such as, you know, um, uh, negotiating or strategic planning or marketing? Well, one of the, one of the things when we talked about that, because quite frankly, those of us that were teaching that first year, actually thought the same thing. God, people that were attending that first year, some people had more experience than those of us that were teaching. But the thought of bringing experts in, as Bill thought was, we were the experts. So we just grasped that, and we were quite nervous that first year. Um, but we all decided that we would want to hear from somebody that is actually doing the job every day. And, and that was the other piece. Uh, I wanted to hear from my colleagues and what made them successful. And we believe that the folks that we choose, that we chose to come in in the beginning to brainstorm the classes and to bring on as regents were people that were well respected in the industry. I mean, there were many people, but there were a lot of people that didn't want to make the commitment. This was a huge commitment in the beginning because you had to write all the monographs, you had to prepare it, and, and it is a, a volunteer position. We don't get paid for it. Our expenses get paid for when we are there. But, you know, a lot of us take, have to take vacation time uh, from work in order to be able to do this volunteer. Other people are blessed and their employers give them business time to, to do this. So um, we needed to find people that had commitment mm -hmm. to the process of teaching. And, and that was really hard to do in the beginning, believe it or not. And so, uh, so how are regions then selected, and and then now uh, there's been some turnover replaced. Yeah, now that now that we've had some turnover, um, I have to tell you, in the beginning it was very difficult. We couldn't find people that really wanted to come and do that, and and we couldn't really understand if it if it was the time commitment. Again, it is a lot of work. It was if it was an intimidation factor uh, that people didn't want to get up in front of their colleagues and actually teach because you open yourself up for a lot of criticism, or you can. Um, so we went out to um, take a good look at the students as they came through the school. And I don't think we've mentioned, but the second year includes a group project, and we divide the students into groups of five or six, and they're given a group project, and at the end of the week, they have to present their group project to their colleagues. So what we started to do is to earmark people to see if they might indeed be interested. Mm -hmm. um, 
and, and I actually let them know, hey, would you ever be interested? So that was somewhat successful. And then I don't know what happens, but finally, within the last four or five years, we've had quite a bit of interest in people joining uh, or being interested in coming through and doing an interview for a position as they become open. Because one of the things that we were concerned about, and I've been with the school from day one, as, as several of us have, um, if we can't nurture and, and, and assist in the growth of instructors and regions, I mean, how long can we continue to do this? Because you, sometimes, you know, turnover is good and, and getting new perspectives is good as well. So we're at a point now, we're in a very good spot, and we've added several new regions. Uh, we have a couple of instructors that could move into regions positions if folks leave. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the interesting things, Ed, in the very beginning, we had a, uh, a gentleman that was on, uh, was a regent, and it was interesting because in, we originally started as an air medical transport leadership, so that air medical piece. And one of the uh, regents what, had a history of being in the air medical, but he had currently moved into a position at a, a large uh, ambulance company. And we took a lot of um, interesting comments about that. It's like, why would you have anybody from the ground side that's employed by a ground employer teaching air medical? Well, because this person has has a great history at a university with an air medical program, and actually he had a great perspective because he also now had the ground perspective. And now we've gone full circle because some of us don't have, quote, that direct ground responsibility, but our recent audience has um, been a lot of ground people are coming to the school, so, which is now why we address right. medical transport. And it's funny because in the beginning it was like, how could we have this ground person? And now, you know, we're like trying to incorporate all medical transport, whether it be ground, helicopter, or fixed wing. So um, we do like blending the regions with their experience. You know, do they have ground? What, you know, what kind of experience do they have? And can they talk to all modes of transport? Because that's what's important. That's what we're trying to teach. Um, and the ground people that have come to the school, they've loved it. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about first and second year. Uh, Chris, why don't you uh, tell us about what a student should expect in their first year and, you know, tell us about the week and what is required to move on to the second year. I think when you first come down there, I know when I first come down, I was not really sure what to expect. I think it's gotten a lot better now that the brochures are out and people have an idea, and certainly they have more people to talk to, so they, they can talk to some of their colleagues who have attended. Uh, your first year, you are going to be in class, and essentially in class from 8 until 5. Uh, you know, there's coffee breaks and lunch and the like, but it is didactic. It is book and lecture for mm -hmm. the most part. Uh, but on the other hand, there, you know, it's it's not uh, uncommon to have conversations during and after the lectures uh, with the instructors or with the regents, and certainly uh, others who have attended before. You have the second-year students that are hanging around, perhaps some of the graduates. But uh, you would be looking at a, a host of things uh, that are concerned with medical transport, uh, everything from marketing and you know public relations to uh, a section on. Uh, you know, human resources, management, uh, law, uh, competency-based development, uh, compliance. There's a uh, another day or, or sections on um, leadership and administration. There's a very strong uh, 
component of leadership there. Not, it doesn't necessarily have to be management, but leadership uh, within your program or a program. Um, things like writing contracts, uh, things that I had never done before, had never been exposed to, but had questioned uh, what is it all about. Um, creating relationships, group dynamics, uh, you know, basic leadership skills and the like. And then finances, which uh, many of my colleagues um, you know, we, we don't deal with it that often. We, we certainly know about it and we hear about we have to be you know, fiscally responsible, but to actually go in in a lecture and, and see what's presented in the monograph as to why the finances are the way they are and, and how to manage costs and, and uh, the resources was very enlightening for me and it, and it has been for many of the students that I've spoken with. And then program development, thinking you know, uh, strategically and operationally about uh, the program. So really sort of a, a bird's eye overview of the program and, and how it really operates. Uh, as a flight nurse, my concern is uh, patient care and I go out and take care of my patient, but what goes on behind the scenes, what gets me to that point that allows me to do my job um, was really very interesting. And I think that's what most of the first year students are gonna find out that there's a lot there that perhaps they didn't know, and those who are involved get to see the side of it from purely medical transport, how, how the system works within the medical transport community and the influences both politically or, uh, you know, uh, challenges and competition that you might have. So uh, they, they see it just from the medical transport side. So it's, it's didactic, it's work, it's study, uh, but it's very, very enlightening. And then... A student, there is uh, attendance requirements. This is not like a conference, correct? I mean, if you miss more than a, is it a couple classes? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there is a requirement that you're expected to, uh, you know, be in class, seated, and and uh, you know, listening to the lectures. If you miss more than two classes, uh, it it uh, there has to be good reason why it goes to the board, the regents, who will discuss the case if there's any mitigating circumstances. But um, yeah, we're we're uh, a school. Uh, there's an expectation of professionalism uh, in the school, and you're expected to be in class. And uh, we have you sign in uh, when you're there, uh, mm -hmm. so that we can make sure that uh, you are within the class. And and you've made that promise. You've made that promise to yourself and to your employer that you're going to be there. And we're hoping to help augment that process. And then at the end of the week, then they there's a test. Tell us about that. There is. There's a hundred question test that seems to freak out people quite a bit. Um, if if you read your monographs, uh, if you're listening in class, uh, a lot of these students uh, will review after the monographs. There is some test questions uh, after each of the monographs, and those are good review questions um, to look at. And uh, the students will all get together after class off times and review those test questions. That's a good thing to do. And at the end of the week, uh, you need to uh, take this test. I believe that's on Thursday. And it's a 100-question test. And you need, oh, Denise, correct me if I'm wrong, 80 or 70%? 70%. 70% passing. Uh, yes. To, to, to get by, mm. to come to the second year. Well, uh Chris, I know one of the, the big things that you always hear about is, is the bells. What, what's, what's this bell thing about? <laughs> the history of bells. Perhaps Denise can go into the history <laughs> a little bit longer. I, I know it's a tradition at the school at Ogle Bay. Am I, is that correct, Denise? Yes, it is. 
Okay. Yeah, Chris, so. I mean, the history is the same as it is today. Okay. Uh, the, the bells were used. It's a school, and it's a school philosophy. So you ring the bell when classes are starting, and so that gives everybody notice that they need to get to their class. And every year, every year, and I mean even last year, people said, we're adults. We don't need the bells. But actually... Over the years, it's usually the first year that says it because then it becomes a challenge. Can they steal the bells from the regions? And then students have taken these bells around the world. They've taken pictures of the bells um, on the, you know, like next to the Eiffel Tower, and then they will email them to, or not email them. They will anonymously get them to a regent as a picture. <laughs> They'll post. It's just they do all kinds of things with the bells. So it, um, it ends up Bill goes to beg people to return the bells because he has spent more money <laughs> with the MTLI AIM school than any other school because <laughs> we get so good at at doing that with the bells. But so it's a it's a fun thing. Um, Again, sometimes people say we're adults, we don't need bells, but it ends up being that everybody really does like yeah, the bells. Some of the classes have been so creative, you're right. I remember because they would do it at the slideshow the next year, and you'd see this bell yeah. everywhere in the world. You go, oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. Over the over the summer, get the email with a picture of the bell that they're holding at hostage <laughs> yeah. somewhere in South yeah, America. Or, or, yeah, I've had a, I've had a bell uh, mailed to me. Uh-huh. And. And it's, you know, it just because it's mailed from Denver doesn't mean Denver, you know, somebody could mail it from vacation. So, you know, you'll get a, get a package here at work, and I open it up, and it's a bell. Yeah. But no, you don't know who sent it to you. So it's it's quite fun. It's yeah. quite fun. Well, Denise, you talked a, a little bit about second year and the project. Um, uh, could you tell how, like, students are put in projects, what's the process of developing the projects themselves by the regents, and then how is that graded? What do the the students have to do? Well, the regents sit down, and uh, this is one of the things that we do at the mid-year, and we develop projects. And over the years, um, students have become smarter than the regents, and, um, you know, they're like, hey, we can help you with your projects because we know what this project's all about. So we've had to become smarter and um, and develop new projects. So I hesitate to talk too much about that. Uh, we've renamed projects. We've developed current issues um, into projects. But the key is um, we want to see people be able to use the materials that they've learned from first year and second year into the resolution of their projects. Mm-hmm. So that was very important. And how we um, assigned the employ uh, the students to the group projects. That's a trade secret. We can't share that. Uh, but I I can tell you that one of the things that we do try to do in the projects is to make sure each group is well balanced. Uh, for instance, we we wouldn't want to put um, five nurses together. Not that we have anything against nurses, but we want to be able. You know, if there's an administrator in the group or a pilot or a mechanic or you know, whatever, uh, a paramedic. We want to make sure that the, each group is evenly stacked so that nobody has the advantage of 
honestly being able to just do the project themselves or nobody has a clue because the project is focused. Um, each project has a, fo a financial focus, usually a staffing issue, um, maybe some kind of current event issue. Uh, so we want to make sure that each each group is, has the appropriate persons in it. So you're trying to balance. That's, about the, that's the closest I can get to without telling you exactly how we decide. Yeah, but you're um, trying to balance the expertise, in other words, yeah. uh, on, on that. Also go into a little bit, I know Craig uh, Yale had developed a piece on group process because uh, you found over the years, you know, this is very important. It's an intense process that people that have been through second year. I mean, really, the second year is probably harder than the first year because of how much time that's required to, you know, come together, figure out who's doing what, and then um, coming up with your finished project all in four days. Um, and so talk about that group process piece and how the uh, regents help groups look at that process so, so that they can, you know, move through the project much easier. You know, it's it's really interesting. I, I just want to mention too, Denise uh, was talking about the projects that that was. Uh, I remember it very clearly. One of the most challenging, and yet one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done. Uh, those those three or four days uh, made very close friends, uh, close attachments, uh, understood things that I had never thought about before, and and uh, the workload. I still keep in touch with those same people from my group project. It was uh, really a, an adventure and fantastic. Um, that aside, part of that dynamic with the group projects is the sort of what groups go through. Um, you're, you're put into the group by the secret process that the regions have, and um, you uh, um, come together in this sort of storming, uh, if I have it right, forming, norming, and performing. Um, initially, the group getting together, you're sort of making introductions, trying to figure out who's who, uh, where they're at, in their uh, their career and and what can they offer to the group and then you begin to start throwing ideas out and and begin to see what's working and eventually uh, leadership establishes itself and uh, the process begins to uh, just move forward at points it fails miserably as as ours did our group uh, probably a day into it uh, it just sort of came to a halt because there was no consensus on where we were going, and yet we moved beyond it. So the the uh, idea is the students will go through this process. They might not know it. They could go through it very quickly, or they might not ever get all the way through it, but they do discuss this uh, during their uh, project presentation on the last day, uh, how they felt about the, the group dynamic and uh, how they managed to get through that whole process. And then talk about, they, they do a formal presentation and uh, they are reviewed by regents that, uh, you know, we're not helping them with that project. Explain that process, because I know a lot of people are apprehensive uh, in the second year because they're each asked to do at least some part of that presentation. The group project, uh, there's assigned uh, qualifications, uh, certain things that you have to meet to uh, uh, for instance, everyone in the project uh, has to present. Uh, at some portion, they have to present. Um, everyone has to be involved in the process. And then the regents that evaluate that process are, are given a uh, numerical scale to uh, 
evaluate how involved it was, uh, to what depth they, they got into the project uh, and uh, formed an answer or a resolution, um, perhaps even using some resolution that none of the regents had ever thought of or no one else had ever discussed. It's um, Perhaps it's worth mentioning, too, that you have a regent that's with your group, perhaps even two regents that are uh, able to consult with you and help you along in that process, and you have consultants. Uh, I think, Denise, if I'm correct, are you a consultant? I am the administrative assistant. So all the... Anybody that might want help, we've kind of streamlined it again this year. I'm their initial contact, and depending on the help that the group may need, I will um, consult, if you will, uh, one of the regents to meet up with them. Because what was happening is maybe one or two regents were getting on the calls, and with all the other responsibilities that the regents have, they couldn't necessarily get back to the groups in a timely fashion. So we decided that if I could streamline and direct groups to certain regions, we could keep it more evenly um, evenly for all the regions. Got you. Well, let's, let's talk. Okay, so they get through second year. Now they uh, become graduates of the school. And Denise, you had talked about the CMTE or Certified Medical Transport Executive. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. How long before a student then must recertify um, before, you know, and, or, and how much time is allowed um, to get those sure. continuing education credits to keep their certification? Well, And what we did, Ed, is um, many of the regents and the instructors are certified in other stuff, if you will, stuff being my favorite word, Um, whether it's in some kind of clinical certification or administrative certification. certification. Most certifications last three or four years, and in order to renew a certification, you have to get continuing education credits in that that particular arena. So that's what we modeled it after. Um, so we have a three-year time frame, and I believe it's 25. I think it's 25. Um, and we have uh, uh, credits that need to be obtained. And actually what we have found is a lot of the graduates come back to graduate school. Um, and we found that pretty interesting, which is why we've developed our graduate school so much, because we had sent out surveys in the beginning. Would you like to see graduate school combined with the AIMS mid-year, the AMTC? You know, certainly there's many venues out there. Most people wanted to come back to Ogle Bay. They like the environment. Mm-hmm. They like the work arena, and they like the ability to network at a smaller level. And so that's why we developed the graduate school to be held in conjunction with um, years one and two um, so that people can network if they choose. And people just really like coming back to Ogilvy. Mm-hmm. So they have three years to do it. And if they came back all three years, they would have their credits uh, for their certification. And, and we do have paperwork, just like any other certification, that you have to fill out um, and turn in. And it's $150 to recertify with your CMTE. Okay. And then how many of the students, you know, come to the school because they 
just want to uh, and are, are doing doing that either by paying their own way or having their company support them versus maybe being required to come as part of being a, a manager at, at their program? That's a question that I probably can't answer, whether they're required to come or their desire to come. Mm-hmm. For, I, I don't think we've ever asked that specific question. I can tell you that most of the people, when we're there and we start talking to the first-year people, most of them want to come. Um, others have been identified by their management as a great learning opportunity. Um, for instance, where I work, we don't have a large man- management structure at all. We were never set up that way. So for me, it was always um, good to look back and see who, who would like to – you know, I think one of the reasons that for going to the school is to develop your leadership skills. And maybe you might never be in a leader position or may want to be in a leadership position, but I think with the education that the schools provide, it can provide an individual to be a better employee because they understand. Mm-hmm. You know, when you understand about budgets, you understand requ- uh, requisition of a vehicle, um, you understand corporate compliance, you know, and the, a variety of other things that we teach, you know, you might not be sitting back at work anymore and going, oh, that's a bunch of, you know, hogwash. Instead, you might be, yeah, I, I understand why they have to do that. So even if it develops an employee as a better employee, you get the bang for your buck. And I think we're seeing that more and more. Okay. Has the economy affected uh, the, those having to pay on their own versus the, their company? Do you know that? Um, we have seen this year, um, we had a rush of people coming to the school, and then it has slowed down. So um, I had asked uh, the school to provide me with a list of folks that attended the last two years and maybe those that have not signed up to come back yet. And so, you know, we called a few people and said, hey, you know, MTLI is around the corner. We know that you came last year. Are you able to come this year? And we found, quite surprisingly, the answer was, we just haven't gotten around to it. Once again, you know, it's our type A personalities. <laughs> we don't do anything right away. We always wait till the last minute. We did have some people that were no longer in the business, so they weren't coming back. And we did have a few people that said, if we want to come back, we have to pay for it on our own, and I'm not sure that I can afford it this year. But that wasn't um, the norm. It wasn't even half. So at least so far that number is low. Um, We are just approaching our budgeted numbers, So, um, and we're actually on par with where we were at last year at this time. So it's hard to say you know, what the final numbers will be for this school, but um, we're very close to the numbers that we budgeted. So um, we're very appreciative, um, and we'll see what happens with so are the there, numbers once we get to the school. Are there slots uh, still open for first, yes. second, and second? Okay. Yes, there are. Okay. There, are sl- there are still um, availability. And then people can get that information by going to the AIMS website and getting an application? Yep. Okay. Yes. We we talked about the graduate school uh, already a little bit, but can you talk about the attendance over the years and how that's uh, grown with the number of graduates from the school too? 
the gradual you know there's there's a sense that uh, t- most want to come back and and we've heard that and Denise mentioned it time and again that we will initially it was boy we'd like to come back we we had a great time here and we enjoyed it we uh, the networking the information and there was no vehicle to come back so originally that that was started up a couple years after the initiation of the school to allow the students to come back um, and it went over very well. It's progressed to the point now where um, people want to come back to renew their CMTE, but more importantly, we are building on what we think is the first and second year presentations, um, and it's driven by students' requests. So as Denise mentioned, we do a, a poll at the end of the year, and they say, you know what, we would like to have this and have this. Uh, presented well when you allow them to say this is what I'd like presented and then in fact you do present it they come back and it was a novel approach by actually uh, trying to present things that people wanted versus what we thought they might want mm-hmm. um, and so it, we, we found a, a fairly stable group coming back we're very near our numbers from last year at this time and uh, hope to uh, Get, get right up there. Um, generally, the people coming back on the, the graduate side, they're busy doing other things, and then they say, as Denise mentioned, oh, you know what, I forgot to turn my thing in. Once they get a peek at what's being offered and that they were the ones that had asked for it, we, we, uh, we get them to sign up. Okay. Chris, I know you uh, spend a lot of time at each uh, air medical transport conference talking to prospective students uh, at the Ames booth. Um, what do you tell them about the school, and, and what kinds of questions do you get from prospective students? Uh, I, I enjoy that immensely because basically I have about uh, you know 800 friends that come by and see me. Uh, anybody that's come through the school is happy to stop over and say hi and, and what's going on and render an opinion on what they think the curriculum should be and something about the bells and perhaps we should do this and that. Uh, most of the time I'm, I'm speaking from the heart about what I feel uh, about the school, uh, and especially since I've transitioned mostly to the graduate school. Um, but I get a lot of first-timers, first people walking by saying, you know, as you do at a trade show, what is this? You know, they're afraid you're going to sell them something. So I do some novel things like sit out in the middle of the aisle and uh, have people, you know, walk by me wondering what I'm doing out there. Or I mentioned, uh, ask them not to look at our booth. You shouldn't be looking over here because I'll have to talk to you and you don't want to talk to me. (laughs) And eventually they they come over and talk and I I tell them what I got out of it, my personal, uh, what, what I gained from it. More importantly, I have students that are standing there while I'm talking to them, and they're either graduate students or second-year students, and I tell them, you should be talking to this person here. They can tell you. And they are the huge, a huge part of it, big advocates of the school, and will tell them what it did for them. Um, they get questions like, uh, I think I mentioned, uh, if not, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not in management, I'm new to the business, or... Or, or I'm a physician, I don't know how this affects me. And it's easy to tell them that it's it's not focused necessarily on a position. It's focused on the entire medical transport community. And it's about looking from a bird's eye view. I call it a shuttle view, where you get a whole picture of everything on management issues, finances, uh, leadership, you know, team building. And, and it was very important to me. It, it made a, a huge impact on... on 
um, where I work and, and who I work with. And it's, so it's easy for me to tell them how it affected me. And so with uh, my own experiences and then having the other students there who are second-year students, uh, they, they carry the ball. They'll run away with it. And often all I have to do is uh, just turn to uh, one of them and they'll say, let me tell you how this is going to help you out. Um, we've had a lot of international students, uh, you know, physicians and, and uh, nurse practitioners and managers, people new to management, uh, people brand new to the industry uh, or the community that have never had any uh, experience whatsoever. And uh, we've been uh, very fortunate and have provided very good education for those people. What, what if you have a sp- prospective student come up and, you know, they're saying, well, I'd love to come. I can't afford it myself, but my employer doesn't understand what this is or, you know, can't afford another conference. What, what do you do to assist them? Uh, usually I ask them for their cell phone and ask them, let me talk to their <laughs> uh, their manager. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to convince them. Um, they usually know someone who knows someone else now. The employer, uh, we had a thing this year that we offered, uh, uh, and we've done this in the past, just not as formalized. Um, your boss, what, what's your boss think about this? And I'm certain the person who has to fund this uh, wants to know what the school is about. And this year we offered you could bring your boss to a graduate school for a reduced fee. Uh, they certainly have questions about uh, what's going on at MTLI and what's going on in the graduate school. Hopefully they see that in the performance of the uh, graduates of the school that have come back to the program. Uh, but we can, you can bring your boss for a reduced fee and he can come down or she can come down and sit in on the graduate school and or go to the first or second year classes if they would like. Uh, we have had uh, senior members of administration and some of the uh, larger uh, uh, providers that have come and been invited to the school that have sat in on the classes to listen. And uh, I'm pleased to say that uh, they have come back and, and uh, not just audited, but have gone through the first and second year courses and have come back for graduate school mm-hmm. as well. Okay. Well, the, uh, Chris, this school is quite serious, as you've uh, both explained in first and second years and even in the grad school. But there are some fun times during the week. Uh, why don't you talk about some of those, including, uh, you know, there's, there are, is some free time. There's a, a golf outing, uh, the, the graduation banquet. Uh, tell us about that. Well, in the, uh, on Tuesday of uh, the classes, the first class day is uh, long and overwhelming, and uh, I'm not sure how it came about, uh, but uh, we have the second uh, on Tuesday afternoon is a golf outing. Um, I'm not a golfer. Uh, anyone who's watched me do that can testify to that. But I enjoy going out there, and I'd, I'd have to say it's almost a team-building exercise. You get in with the students, you get together with uh, both graduates or uh, the regents uh, and first and second year, and you play some golf, and, and you have just a blast. The day is wonderful. Most of the time it's beautiful. I shouldn't say it's always beautiful. We've had a few uh, rainstorms in there, but spending time with the students for an afternoon and being out there is just uh, absolute fun. And again, even though I'm not a golfer, I love driving the cart. So we have a wonderful time there. There's uh, certainly ample time uh, after classes to uh, study, but uh, students do take advantage of the weather. There's some volleyball out in the middle of the courtyard. A lot of people just walk the grounds, and the grounds are absolutely uh, stunning. They're beautiful. And time for reflection, time for studying. Not uncommon to see students out down on the fringes of the golf courts or down on some of the trails, sitting there on the benches, staying there, monographs. 
um, people get together at night, uh, have a cocktail, uh, talk about what the classes were about. Um, and, and, and in general, there's this sort of community feel to the whole thing the whole time. It's uh, The classes are serious enough. We expect that during the class. After the classes are over, the regents are available any time. Any of the instructors are available. And we like to walk around and see how people are doing. I have no problem talking with any of the people, welcoming them back, offering them help. There's certainly a lot of questions a lot of times, but it's a, it's a very light atmosphere uh, outside of the classrooms, uh, as it should be, because it's a beautiful place that uh, welcomes that. Talk about the graduation banquet, too, Chris. Graduation banquet's the last uh, ed. Uh, we from the Eddies. There is a presentation. Uh, aside from the, uh, we're very excited to have the uh, students who are graduating from their second year. Uh, many of the uh, people who have already graduated that are back for the grad school elect to stay for the banquet because they have such time. The food's incredible. Uh, the entertainment is uh, great. Uh, one takes a turn. You can apply to have uh, some time at the mic. Uh, it's almost like uh, the Academy Awards. We we need to get some music playing so that people will tie up uh, thanks and uh, and telling everyone what what, it, what they did. But uh, there is a thing called the Eddie's and Award Banquet where um, we get together and uh, throughout the week uh, we look at particular little things of uh, the individual students, what they do, and how they fit within uh, some of the awards that we have. The awards uh, change every year. Uh, I can't go into them because uh, people would want the awards, uh, would perform for that particular award. But <laughs> we have an absolute blast at uh, the award banquet, and then certainly the presentations of uh, for the graduates, uh, the plaques and the, and the presentations uh, is, is really great. Uh, they're so excited. There's pictures, uh, you know, group pictures, and uh, plaques of presentations of CMTE. It's, it's a great time. It's a perfect end to a, a, a busy week. Well, uh, Denise, MTLI is basically a, a management program, but what is the breakdown as far as the uh, students themselves and, and their backgrounds? Like how many are you know, physicians, medical directors, nurses, paramedics, communicators, pilots, A&P engineers, and, and maybe just general administrative? Um, originally, Ed, what, what we saw the first couple of years was <clears throat> basically – uh, folks that were in management positions. And if you look at the school and you look at our air medical community, it doesn't take one long to figure out, well, the school could be out of business rather quickly if that was their sole target. And that's when we started talking about, look, this isn't just for our program directors, and we had to market it as such. So that's when we started um, marketing at the AMTC and being uh, able to talk to people and say it will just make you a better employee, regardless of your position, if you go to this. So slowly, we started seeing um, medics, flight nurses, an occasional mechanic or two, occasional aviator or two, an occasional physician or two. Um, and now I think. I don't have exact numbers for you, and we still have a strong sense of uh, folks that are in management position, but we are seeing more people that um, are financial people that are involved in their programs, um, some HR people. We're seeing um, aviators that 
fly the line. We are seeing maintenance staff, uh, and we are seeing medical directors. Um, medical directors is a group I would like to see more of, um, and one of their concerns is that there's no medical education uh, training. And again, um, whether we're not targeting the right group or getting the message out there, but I think one of the things that's going to help us a lot is our new president of Ames is Dr. Hankins, and he is a graduate of MTLI, and I think he'll be able to help us in this uh, venue of getting uh, medical directors to see the light, that this is actually a good program, especially if they're involved in the operations of their program. Clinical is one thing, but if they're involved in the operations, um, it's a great program. It's a great program for anybody to understand the basics of running a program. Yeah, I mean, because when you look at a program, I've always felt this way. I mean, if you look at your management team, you have... You know, depending on how large the program, you know, a chief flight nurse, the your director of communications, um, yep. your uh, if you have your own part one thirty five, your, um, you know, director. Um, so a lot of these folks, just because it's their background, they need management uh, training and experience too. So, yep. Um, and I think, you know, a great group, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it's like the communications folks, you mm-hmm. know, so many other groups, medics, you know, clinical people, there's a million things that you can go to for certifications and and to enhance your education um, once you're in a position for a long time. And I find, and one of the things that I struggle with where I work is the communication folks, you know, once they go through their next course and get the certification, um, that's kind of it for communication staff that's right. You know, there's not an opportunity for them to have growth. And MTLI is a wonderful opportunity to keep them invested and interested um, in what they're doing every day. And I found sending the communications staff to MTLI is is a great opportunity since when you think about it, they're the first ones that have a contact with your customers. And if they understand what it's all about, that's a great start. Mm-hmm. Well, the school, what, little over a month what what are the exact dates coming up for the school it's what April? uh april twenty sixth through the twenty ninth and that's so it actually well, people would arrive away. on the twenty fifth right on sunday um yeah we usually have people um arrive on the twenty fifth which is a sunday and we have um to kick off that night we have an orientation for the first year and the second year and then we have a banquet that night so that people can kind of Mingle, get to meet others, or the people that are there for second year, hook up with the people from first year. Um, We introduce all the regents and the instructors, so there's kinds of name, face recognition. Um, We do invite graduate school school starts on Monday, and then there's really no orientation because they've been to school a couple years, so they know it. But if they choose to come in on Sunday, they're more than welcome to come and join us at the banquet, um, rekindle old friendships. And then Monday school starts for everyone. Uh, Chris, tell us about the the graduate program this year. Who's the presenter? Oh, we're very very excited, and again, this has been driven basically by the students. Um, we we have a couple different presenters this year, and we're really excited to have uh, uh, Chris Laubach come in, who's the uh, president for um, Center for Management and Programs. He's been doing this for twenty years on negotiations. 
uh, and uh, he's going to teach the process and the techniques of negotiations, and obviously this tantamount to success and knowing how to negotiate. And uh, this gentleman uh, is very skilled, has been a nationally recognized author in the field of this, and we're excited to have Chris come on board. He's going to be uh, teaching for Monday and then uh, part of Tuesday, and of course Tuesday afternoon is the, uh, the golf outing. Uh, on Wednesday, we're incredibly excited to have Dr. Terry Von Thaden come in. Uh, she is, well, her history is uh, long and involved, but uh, she's assistant professor of uh, Human Factors uh, Division, uh, Institute of Aviation at uh, Urbana-Champaign, has been involved in uh, uh, engineering, psychology, uh, has worked with information, basically teaches information um, and how it works within uh, systems and, and how human factors influence those systems. Uh, she's worked with the uh, NTSB. She's an air traffic control and aviation management person. Uh, and, and she's going to be talking about the, uh, how, not only how we do things, but uh, how we, we look at them and how we incorporate them into our psyche as far as the safety and actually the practical applications. And then uh, talks about things like uh, personal commitment and responsibilities and accountabilities and, and safety. And then she's going to touch on uh, implementing uh, safety management systems, uh, safety culture uh, within the uh, medical transport environment. And she's going to be speaking all on Wednesday, and uh, I'm, I'm very excited to hear her. And on Thursday, uh, she's going to teach the morning class, and then we have Howard Ragsdale. Uh, a lot of people may be very familiar with uh, Howard. He's uh, been a long-time pilot, uh, aviation manager, and, and uh, a leader within the medical community. Uh, recently uh, was uh, working with uh, PHI, if I'm correct, uh, has been involved in government affairs. Uh, he works uh, or serves at least, uh, if I'm correct, on the board of uh, Commission of Accreditation of Medical Transport Systems and is currently the uh, Vice President of Development and Air Methods Corporation. He's going to be talking budgeting. And again, this was something that was driven by the students uh, the last two years. They have requested finances, requested budgeting. And uh, he's going to talk about fine-tuning some of those uh, skills uh, within the uh, air medical industry and uh, help us uh, learn learn what it is and how to do it better with our finances. Yeah. So it's going to be a great presentation. We're very excited to have all three of the uh, speakers and uh, look forward to seeing all of our returning students. That sounds like three wonderful programs. Now, does someone sign up? They can come to just one of the programs or they could sign up for two or all three. Is that correct? Uh, you know, that's an interesting question. I believe that they can come in. Most, uh, my experience has been this, Ed. Most of the people are going to come in. They want to come in on Sunday. They want to say hi to everybody. They want to come to the banquet. And then they want to come to all three days of classes. Now, sometimes their jobs say that they have to, you know, pull out. Uh, virtually everyone is there from day one till the end on Thursday. And most even stay for the Thursday banquet. But I guess my question was around the credits. Is there credits for each of those courses, or do you have to go through all three? Uh, there's credits. Um, all, you can uh, get, if I'm correct, and this is always a point of contention, 21 credits for the entire uh, course for that uh, three days. I see. Um, okay. uh, I, again, I'm not sure if the breakdown, if you were to come to some and, and pull an individual credit out of that. 
Yeah. You know, in, in years past, we did separate the grade school, so if people wanted to come Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday and Thursday, but we have, we just offer now the grad school. I see. We and then maybe that was part it, of We don't break, yeah, we don't yeah. break it down oh, anymore, okay. because we were having too many problems with logistics, if you will. So we just went to one grad school, because... That's basically what folks wanted to do, and it made it easy. Now, people have been very honest with us, and if they say, hey, I can't stay for Thursday, I have to leave Wednesday night, we adjust their credits. Because as you know, in order to give a a credit CEU, it's equal to, you know, one hour of education. So in all fairness, if somebody leaves Wednesday night, they should only get credit for three days, not the four-day Okay, well, well, that that was part of my confusion because when I was a regional, I know when we... I should have jumped... Yeah, yeah, no, that's okay. Because I remember we had when we were expanding it to to, to look at uh, how you do that. I, I just wanted to make one comment. Uh, Chris Lawbeck is is great, and uh, I modeled actually much of what I taught uh, in the first year class on negotiating based on Chris's work and actually his father's work. He, he had actually started uh, that process and techniques of negotiation, and they actually American College of Healthcare Executives where they primarily give this class, uh, also has an advanced class. And I always told people, I know it was in my monograph, how much, you know, I would say if you needed to get extra uh, assistance in process of negotiation, go to this class. So it is wonderful that you're having that at the uh, uh, graduate school. Yeah, we're, we're very pleased to have Chris come on board and teach. Uh, can't wait to uh, listen to him and, and uh, see the students' reactions on what he's going to be presenting. Well, I know time's uh, running short. Is there anything else uh, that either of you would like to say about MTLI? I'd just like to say, come on down. You'll love it. It's exciting and it's fun and you'll learn a lot and you'll take a lot back to whomever you work for or with. And it's a great opportunity. And and I look forward to it every year because it refocuses, re-energizes, makes me think again uh, uh, about what a, a great opportunity I had to uh, go to the school uh, to be asked to come on board and uh, help uh, pass this information on to others. It's really a privilege. Well, thank you so much, uh, both of you, for taking the time to be on the podcast. And, Denise, I wanted to just uh, give a heartfelt, uh, you know, I know uh, you lost your mother recently, and and your mom was such an important uh, part of MTLI over the years because she would always come with you. And, in fact, uh, the regents, we called her mom, too, so she'll be (laughs) surely surely missed. Thank you. It's going to be a difficult year, but um, I know with all the regents who loved her as much as I did, um, they're going to help me get to this week because it'll be tough, but um, I'll be able to embrace I'm missing her with everybody's help. So thank you very much for that acknowledgement, Ed. Yeah, it's a wonderful woman. Well, thanks, guys. Take care. Thank you, Ed. Go Blue. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. 
I apologize for this episode running over the length I like to keep it, but I think you will agree there's lots of good information. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. Stan's work can be found at roomtuneenterprise.com. Please continue to keep the citizens of Haiti, the victims of the earthquake, and all the volunteers in your thoughts and prayers. Until the next episode, take care and fly safe.